welcome to episode number 52 of RSVP, the podcast about stationery and so much more. I'm your host, Dade, and my co-host today is Lenore. Sadly, Les is away, and we miss her very, very much. Tonight, we're talking about motivation and thinking, but first, let's talk about what we're consuming. So, I am drinking my very last cup of Revelator Petunias. I've been doing that trade coffee subscription thing that Les introduced me to. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's it's good and bad because you don't know what you're getting. And because you don't know what you're getting, it could be $15 or $30. Like, it's it's coffee that they choose based on a series of questions you, you answer. So, um, the coffee that I'm going to be drinking next was 25 bucks for two bags, which I think is reasonable for, like, small batch roasted coffee. So, um, so yeah, so my last cup of petunias, it's been really good. Um, I've actually been able to drink black coffee without kind of being angry at it. (laughs) Um, I used to drink my coffee with cream and sugar and it was Les actually who motivated me to stop doing that or try to stop doing that. And it's opened a new world. So, um, I am not writing with anything as I am podcasting from my bed today. Um, I'm surrounded by three cats. One is actually my armrest right now. So I'm super cozy. Um, and as far as hobbies and things that I've been doing, I mean, I've been really busy with work. I, like you guys probably know, I have three jobs. Um, two of those are in academia. And as Lenore very well knows, this is the time of year when things are crazy and hectic. You're on the professorial side of it, Lenore. Um, I'm on the, please help me edit my paper. It's my final paper. It's due tomorrow. Um, side of it. So, uh, writing center has been really busy and the high school has been really busy. Um, but I have started playing magic, the gathering again, which I didn't think I would ever do because it's very expensive. It's kind of like this money sink, but I've really missed it. And I actually miss the people around it. Um, it's really hard to find a non-toxic gaming community around here. And this community is great. There's a lot of queer and trans folks. There's people that are straight allies that are respectful of pronouns. It's like the dream situation for any gamer. So it's been nice to reconnect with people again. So that's really it for my world. Uh, Lenore, what's going on over there? Yeah, I'm also deeply in the mire of the end of the semester. (laughs) Um, I gave my final on Saturday. I've only got one course this year. I've got three sections of it, but it's only one course. So uh, most of the people took their final on Saturday, and then I had a few that had uh, conflicts and had makeup scheduled, and those took me most of yesterday to process. And, you know, it's just been the slug of getting everything finished. And so now I've done all the big jobs and I'm down to like the 40,000 special cases that are, I don't know, you know, supposed to be five minutes each, but some of them really take 20. And then, you know, there's one I have to go back and redo after I figure something out after I do another one and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's just always something. So I'm drinking water because I, uh, 
Yeah, because I'm sitting in my daughter's room because it's the only place in my house that has good sound. And uh, (laughs) (laughs) so I'm just sitting here with some water. And uh, I'm uh, something that this is a small thing, but I know some of you out there will appreciate it. I'd never seen these before this year, but there is such a thing for Easter as Sweet Tarts Jelly Beans. Yes. Um, and they're the best jelly beans ever. Yeah. They're so good. So we bought like four extra bags before they, you know, because the good candy is never still around the day after Easter, right? So we bought them and we we are down to one bag in the house because everybody in the house likes them so much. And they're bound and, to next uh, year, I'm sure. I know. That's the thing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's been kind of fun. Um I've got, sorry, that was a long gap. That's okay, I'll edit that. Okay. Uh, Spawn and I went to see Captain Marvel recently, and... So good. Yeah, it was so good, it was so good. And also, uh, we went to see Shazam, which was surprisingly good. So it was kind of fun to go, We I don't remember the last time we went to two movies in the theater in one week, but but we did those, and that was that was great. It was really fun to go with her. Spouse has no interest at all in any superhero movie ever. So if, if we're going to go, it's always just going to be her and me. And um, that was that was good. I haven't decided whether to go see Endgame yet because we didn't go see Infinity War because of the reviews about how, you know, basically they're just killing off all the current characters so that they can start with some new ones because people are starting to get old. Right, yeah. Um, Which I get, but still. Yeah. No, I took um, Gina. So Gina is like Lou in the sense that she does not want to see anything superhero-like. But um, she saw a trailer with, you know, um, a cat. And so she's like, there's a cat in the new Marvel movie? And I'm like, yeah, actually there is. So it kind of got her to go, and now she wants to watch all the movies in chronological order. So I, I, I got her to come over to the dark side. Ah, uh, but which chronological order? Because the order they came out, or the order that they kind of happen, or the order that makes the most narrative sense? So she Googled this. I'm so yeah, excited and happy. Good. Because so, she, yeah, go ahead. Den it, of Geek is the list I've been using. It's the one where the first one to watch is Iron Man, and then it kind of goes from there. Cool. Yeah. Um, I, I had looked up on, I you know, the same thing, just kind of several couple of years ago, really, had looked up the order in which to watch the X-Men movies and the order in which to watch the the Marvel, you know, Avengers Universe kind of movies. And uh, Den of Geek has good lists, like alternate lists and, you know, explanations about, well, if like this order introduces these discontinuities, but this works if you want to do this, and you can actually leave this one out, and it kind of is okay, and it's it was it was good to be able to educate myself a little bit about it, because I was watching most of them by myself for a while as they came out until Spawn got old enough to go, and then going back and trying to figure out what order to to get them from Netflix or whatever was was a little bit more work you know but it was worth it so it's been really fun getting through those with her and i don't know i kind of want to go now that i 
like Captain Marvel, I kind of want to go see Endgame, even if we do still just never watch Infinity War. So we'll see. Yeah. But I can't think about that until I get my grades turned in. <laughs> well, it's, <laughs> so many things I can't think about until I get my grades turned in. Like, are you still, like, so for your, what does that entail for you? Because I am friends with English professors and psychology professors who have to hand grade things and read a lot of things. Um, like, like you said, you teach like intro courses. So you have hundreds of students, I'm, sh- I'm sure, right? Yeah, it's a little bit of a light semester because I only have, I think, maybe 140. Okay. Um, so it's not too bad, but okay. So what does it look like? I have over the last couple of days, I ran the scantrons for the big class. And so that sounds like no big deal, but our scantron machine is older than most of my students. Oh, I mean, God. at this point it may be older than some of their parents. I'm not even kidding. And so it, all it does is print a number of correct answers on oh. each side of each card. Jeez. <laughs> so, you know, I run them through, but then I have to go and like, I, I manually put all of those grades into the computer. And I, uh, I also check them as I'm doing that. And if there's any marks, you know, any stray marks that I can see or any obviously poor erasures or something like that, I check and see that it scored correctly. Yeah. And, um, and then there's also, they have to do like one free response answer in some of the blank space on, on the back of the Scantron card. And so those are hand graded. And then I go through and for each student, I have three scores to put into my spreadsheet and then my spreadsheet calculates a raw score and a percent score. Okay. So like that's kind of production work. Uh, you know, there's, there's definitely huge economies of scale for that. You know, they're yeah. all, they're all kind of the same. There's, a minute or less of, you know, and it, even if there's a special case that I have to do a little bit of work on, it's, it's, def, it's two minutes maybe. And most of them are seconds. Then there's all the special cases. So <laughs> yeah. So then I've got the people who did a makeup exam, which is a different version. And so I've got to make sure like I, I had to write two different alternate tests and I had to write keys for those and, you know, write double check keys yeah. And then put together a score report because those aren't returned, but I give them back a score report and those have to be written and edited. And then I have to actually calculate the grades based on the slightly different test. And that doesn't just go straight into the spreadsheet. Like I've got to do some massaging there. So those are the ones that I'm, I'm sort of in the mindset that it's going to be five minutes per student, but it's really more like 20 and then if I find anything that I needed to correct, I've got to go back and do it in all of the other, you know, anything I've finished so far. So, I mean, basically it took me most of the day yesterday to get through all of the work that had to be done for the alternate final students and then putting in the scores for the online homework, which doesn't feed directly into the, <laughs> into Blackboard. You know, so I download the spreadsheet for the online homework and I do all of the work for that. And then those grades have to be manually input because that system doesn't have the same, you know, it doesn't, they don't, they don't sign up with their student ID number or their user ID. So like, it's just all a bunch of little stuff. 
Yeah. And then I've got to make sure that any of the people who've emailed me about prior grade corrections, that all of those have been made. And anybody who's had an excused absence, I've noted that in my spreadsheet so that it's calculating their grade out of 500 points instead of 600. Follow up and make sure I've got documentation for everybody who had an excused absence. Make sure that if somebody didn't show up for the final, I have a date of when they were last there because when I'm putting in grades in the registrar system manually per student, by the way. Um, Yeah, you know, it's like three clicks per student if they don't require anything special. You know, the baseline is three clicks per student to put grades into the registrar's system and, uh, you know, and waiting for everything to reload each time. And I mean, it's just, it's, it's It's so clunky. It's a lot. And if I had 20 people, uh, it would be no big deal. And the grading would be hard, but because I have 140 and sometimes I have upwards of 400 and, um, you know, it's just everything. It's, it's, it's the drip, 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 right? It's not, It's not that any one thing takes so long, except it does. But it's also, you know, just that you have a lot more special cases. And then, I, like, I had somebody who emailed me about a late withdrawal form from last spring. And it's, you know, like I'm in the middle of finals. This is a low priority for me. <laughs> right. And then they didn't fill out any of the student information on the form. So, like, I guess they expect me to figure out which of my four sections in two courses they were in last spring and get their ID number and fill out all the parts of the form that they were supposed to fill out before they gave it to me so that I can have it sent in because it's emergency for them. I'm like, well, it's not emergency for me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, there's just always kind of some of that stuff coming in. And if you have, you know, if you have 40 students a semester, you might get one of those every three years, but if you have 140 students a semester, or, you know, between 140 and 450 students a semester, then you have two or three of those a semester. Yeah. And I can't remember the last time I had a semester that I didn't have somebody requesting a late withdrawal form from a previous year. Last year I had one from 2013. Wow. Actually, the beginning of this semester, I had one from 2012. I forgot about that. So, you know, like I'm constantly trying to go back and look up stuff from years ago to, you know, like no semester is ever over, basically. And then I've got students who are taking an incomplete from one for one reason or another. And I have to make sure that they have all the information they need to get finished with their stuff. And, you know, so it's just it's just a lot. It's a lot of little stuff. It's it's secretarial you know at this point in the semester it's five percent science and 95 percent record keeping right so right which is not let me tell you where i excel so you know (laughs) it's not playing to my strengths but you know i mean i'll get it all turned in oh and the other thing i've actually been excited about lately is uh, i got a couple of lots of vintage pencils from ebay which i had not been nice. doing for a while just because I had so much stuff in my office I hadn't even organized and gone through and and looked at and um I got back to the point where I was I had put enough stuff away and given enough stuff away and organized enough things and sort of enjoyed what I was looking at rather than feeling overwhelmed and guilty about it still sitting there that I was like okay I can look for some new stuff you know which is always really fun cuz you know under 20 bucks and you can get some really interesting 
things in the, you know, in the middle of, of, um, a bunch of half used <laughs> office max, <laughs> no name Dixon, you know, whatever right, kind of thing. Right. You know, there's always a bunch of junky empire stuff, but then, then there's some really interesting, uh, little vintage things and some things that are surprisingly competent for looking so unassuming. And so that's a lot of fun. So I always, I always love vintage pencils. I love the fonts and I love seeing when there's several, different years of the same thing right how the that changed over time so that's yeah, always I a like, lot of fun i like the different um ferals on, oh yeah i love that that's one of my favorite things when i go through like an old collection so all right well anything else you want to add to your no let's on? move on in all right <clears throat> so today's topic as i had stated earlier is about motivation and thinking um and really um honestly lenore and i um, came up with this probably 15 minutes ago so (laughs) (laughs) um i think this will be a really good podcast as we are not that we're not always authentic but i think we're going to authentically explore this topic in a way that's kind of unique um Sometimes I find the best podcasts we have are the ones with the least amount of planning because, you know, there's no structure, which I prefer. So, um, sometimes, or it could be a train wreck. Who knows? Right. I mean, that can be too. I mean, it, yeah. it is. We are tangential. We could totally end up not even talking about motivation. Um, so. No, I'm on it. I'm on it. I'm on this. <laughs> um, the reason I, we kind of thought about this, we were, before we started recording, we were talking about just what we were just talking about, how, you know, it's the end of the semester, things are hectic, and really being motivated to do things. Like, I'm, I'm, you know, I said several times over the past year that I was going to be working on a manuscript that, you know, from my thesis that I did in, in undergrad, and I was all excited. And every time I would sit down with it, I really just I'd be good. I'd read a couple articles. I'd, you know, do some things. And then like, I didn't want to do it. Like there was a deep feeling inside that I just didn't want to be doing this. And so I'd put it away and then I'd go back to it and, or I'd be motivated by something or I'd go back and read my original thesis. And it just, it became a task and it shouldn't be a task in the sense that I shouldn't be dragging myself to sit down with it and work on it. Um, and so it kind of made me think about motivation in the sense of like what motivates me. Cause for the longest time I thought maybe it was just something about what I was doing, um, in regards to, to how I was sitting with my materials. And, and so I tried to take a, a different look at it. Like maybe if I set up the ideal workspace and I use, certain tools and and kind of get excited about it in that way that the motivation would come and it never did i've probably tried to work on my manuscript in every possible place around me um my house my favorite coffee place a coffee place i've never been to my old college library a different college library outside and it just it just wasn't happening. And so that made me think deeper about motivation and where that comes from and how it's not always impacted by necessarily tangible things. 
um, and outside things. Like, you know, I did a little bit of study on um, intrinsic and extrinsic motivation in undergrad. And the ideal is to be intrinsically motivated to do things. You know, it comes from within. You want to do what you want to do because you want to do it. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I just think this would be a good topic to kind of, to talk about since we both, um, you and I, Lenore, and Les too, I, I'm really missing Les on this one. I think she would have a lot to, to add. Um, but I, I think that, well, it just means that it's going to have to be part one of a series, <laughs> right? No, I, I was, cause I like, I like Les's, um, point of view from the, you know, a lot of these, and we'll talk about some of these books, but a lot of these books, you know, they're psych- psychology themed, um, and has to do with a lot of behavioral science. And so I'm always interested in what, what Les has to say. So, so yes, maybe there will be a part two. Um, so I don't know where you want to kind of begin. Um, I mean, that was just my intro into like why I felt that, that we should, or that I wanted to talk about this kind of stuff. I think also maybe secretly, um, I have a secret motivation to talk about motivation and that's to get me motivated. Um, was that supposed to be a secret? I mean, <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes talking about something that, that you're having a hard time with, um, really kind of helps you. Yeah, um, definitely. Well, so some of this, th- some of the things that we have, that we touched on before we started recording and that I've been thinking about are things that I've kind of had in my notes to talk about because it's not as tangential as you might think, really. A lot of the conversations that we have, a lot of the things that are almost, you know, tropes or punchlines in the stationary community really do hinge back to a lot of the research on thinking and decision making, right? So before we started recording, you were talking about that it's, it's so hard for you to get back into the, the groove, right? You, you like, you're looking at the statistics and you don't remember how to do it now. Right. And so that kind of got me back into thinking about, um, are you, are you familiar about system one and system two thinking modes? No, I am not. Okay, so this this idea, and I should say I'm a chemistry teacher who's interested in thinking and pedagogy. I'm not a psychologist. I don't study psychology. You know, I don't study thinking in any kind of formal way. So this is my very, this is the, the view of an interested layperson. Just putting that out there. I'm not claiming to be an authority on this. Um I first encountered this, I think, in one of Malcolm Gladwell's books years ago, but it really got kind of into the, um, what it was brought into the awareness of a lot of people by Daniel Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow, mm-hmm. which I really recommend. It was a, I, it was such a fun read for me. I really enjoyed reading this book and there's a lot of stuff in there besides this, but system one, system two. So here's the, here's the kind of framework, right? System one thinking is the kind of stuff that you don't have to think that hard about. Like it doesn't take a lot of mental energy. Like, you know, once you've learned to walk, walking is a system one task. You don't have to be paying attention to where you put your feet. Right. You know, you just you're walking up the street. You can be doing some fairly 
mentally demanding tasks and still be able to walk, right? Mm-hmm. And um, for uh, like the person who is a concert pianist, they can play scales and they can play certain pieces with no mental attention to that task at all. You know, you can get up and if you use the same coffee maker all the time and you have a routine around it, you can make coffee without making mistakes, even if your mind is somewhere else. So there's all of these things that we do that don't take a lot of mental effort. And then system two is the kinds of things that you actually have to put effort into. So this is the kind of decision making uh, when they talk about market research, they talk about this is the kind of decision making you would do around buying a car or buying a house or finding a contractor or something like that. You know, something where you're making lists of pros and cons and you're doing research and you're thinking about it and you're not just making instantaneous decisions. And then the way I see it, there's the whole thing where you can take a system to task and turn it into a system one task by a huge amount of practice and repeated, you know, repeated uh, exposure and stuff like that. So uh, for me to play scales on the piano is a very cognitively demanding task because I'm not a pianist. I, you know, like I bang on the piano some and I enjoy it, but I can't sit down and just play something without thinking about it. I couldn't carry on a conversation or sing and play at the same time. Um, but I can and talk at the same time unless there's, you know, unless there's really demanding driving conditions of some sort, I can, I can talk and drive at the same time. Right. And it's no big deal. But when you're a new driver, Driving is still a very cognitively demanding task all the time, right? You're like, oh, yeah, the mirror. Oh, yeah, the turn signal. Oh, crap, I almost, right. you know, shifted. I almost drifted out of my lane, you know, eyes forward, but I got to check the mirror. And it's it's very, you know, it takes a huge amount of attention. Right. So when you were doing the statistical work and the writing work of the of that project in a very intense way, a lot of the kinds of skills that you were accessing were things that would be system two for almost anyone, but they had almost kind of become a system one thing for you because you were doing it so much at the time. And you were able to make those decisions and come to those understandings and know what you were looking at very quickly. And now you're not. And that's frustrating because it's moved back out of system one and into system two for you. So I, I think that that is kind of a powerful way to think about the, the decisions that we make in a lot of places because we make thousands of decisions a day and most of them we don't even notice because either there's such uh, an obvious sort of right way to do it and it doesn't occur to us to do it wrong ways, right? Or... Uh, we've made those kinds of decisions so many times that we can do them on autopilot. Mm-hmm. So when we're having a hard time making a decision, it's because there's not a clear right and wrong answer, right? Right. And I find that very comforting myself when I'm trying to make big life decisions. If it's a difficult decision, that means that there's no clear right and wrong answer. And if there's no clear right answer, there's no clear wrong answer. Correct. Yeah. Which is actually very freeing. 
right? Because most of the time what we do is we eventually just come to some kind of a decision for whatever reason, and we never have all the information. There's no such thing as all the information, right? And most of the time things work out okay. And five years later, we're like, man, I'm just so glad I did this and not that. But honestly, if you'd done the other thing, it would also have been fine. And you'd have been sitting in the other place going, oh, man, I'm so glad I did that and not this. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, definitely. you know, that's that's kind of my life philosophy is stuff mostly works out. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's it's good to have. And, and the way you just explained that, that whole level of thinking or, or systems of, of thinking, it kind of, well, it, it makes me feel better about not knowing how to do statistics as well as I did. Yeah. Um, I mean, why would you? Right. So, you have to be doing that stuff all the time to be on top of it. Right. And, and it kind of makes sense. So like in, I'll use the statistical example. Um, you know, if, if someone were to ask me to run, you know, Pearson correlations and, and find statistical significance, I could do that any day of the week because it's something I've done the entire length, all four years of undergrad because it's the basic entry level stats. But the stuff that I was working with was like, you know, moderated regression and that's graduate level statistics, but I had to kind of learn it for my thesis. So I'd only been working with it for a year. So you're right. Like it's not, it's not something that I'm constantly engaging with. Whereas if I pick up a academic paper, every, almost every, I'd say 95% of all academic papers for psychology that are studying something um, will we have correlational data? So I'm constantly looking at, the, at that. I'm constantly analyzing it. I'm constantly understanding it. Where not all studies use regression or, you know what I mean? So, yeah, so yeah. it seems to make sense. I kind of like, it's just like, for example, if I think of every course that I took in undergrad, the only stuff that I remember is psychology. All that other stuff, why do I, I, I didn't need it in a sense. You know what I mean? Like I didn't need to hold on to it. Like I feel like Right, right, right. Yeah. It's just and even some of the psychology stuff, like the cognitive psych stuff, that's not my thing. Social psychology is what I'm interested in, so I muddled my way through cognitive psych and then just left it in the classroom because I don't the only thing I know about cognitive psychology is what I knew before I went to college. So Oh yeah. So you know. I I've had this experience in sort of another facet. I've I've frequently looked back at the the notes that I would have from a course that I had taken or even a course that I had taught. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, this is my handwriting. <laughs> <laughs> I literally have no recollection of having ever seen this material before. Like if like I would have sworn in court and passed a lie detector test that I had never heard of the thing that I have clearly re- like written down here and made notes about and answered questions about. And it right. just does not exist in my brain anymore because I haven't used it. So I think that's actually quite common. I pulled my uh, dissertation off the shelf the other day to show spawn a picture of one of the things that I had done. And right. I, as I'm flipping through this, I'm like, oh, yeah, I could not have told anybody anything about this the thing right. that I had right. studied, you know, for months and months and understood intimately better than anybody else and 
written up. I, it just, it's not in my brain anymore. So yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't store everything in our brains. We don't. That's, that's TV. Um, we forget most things. And then I don't know if this applies for anything or if this is a hack that might help you. But one of the things that I just encountered now in uh, thinking about system one and two for market research, which of Mm -hmm. course, you know, this is like, if you want to get people to buy things, you have to like try to get into that thing where they don't think about it and they just buy your thing. Right. Um, But one study found that decreasing the legibility of the font used in a common cognitive test made people more likely to switch to system two. So like just going from I'm answering a question, it's a little harder to read. Like the question got harder because it was harder to read. Right. Regardless of content. Yeah. It became the task became more cognitively. The task became more cognitively demanding because I had to like put a little bit more attention into actually deciphering the letters, you know, so I think about this kind of stuff all the time in the materials I prepare for my courses mm-hmm. that if I mean, I like I don't want to use 20 pa- 20 sheets of paper per exam for 150 people to take an exam. But at the same time, I don't want to use a 10 point font because that's probably fine for 90 percent of the people in the class. But for 10 percent of the people in the class, that's going to be actually enough more difficult to read that it's going to take them longer. It's going to be more cognitively demanding. They're more likely to make mistakes. They're more likely to miss something and give a wrong answer and whatever. And that's, you know, that's not, that doesn't give me the kind of information I want. I'm not testing whether they can read a 10 point font. I'm testing, you know, how much chemistry they've learned. And so I try really, really hard to avoid extraneous information in the questions to make sure that the sentence structure is lucid and uh, easy to parse and the students actually understand what the question is asking them to do. You know, sometimes I look at other people's exams and I'm just like, I, you know, like I'm a, I have a PhD in science and I know a fair amount of, you know, biology or whatever. And I don't even understand what the teacher wants me to do with this question. Like, I literally am not sure what the task is here because it's just, and sometimes of course that's because I wasn't in their class and I wasn't exposed to the material for this particular task. And they may be using the same language they've used all along, but sometimes it's just because it's a badly written question and that's difficult to fight. You know, so like if you're, if you're writing if you want to find out whether somebody knows how to apply the concept of electronegativity to this situation, we'll write a question that finds out whether they know how to apply the concept of electronegativity to this, you know, to this situation. Don't, don't clutter it up with a bunch of other right. stuff. Don't put up impediments to finding that out. Yeah, no. And I totally see this all the time at the writing center. Um, Students will come in and they'll be super frustrated, super discouraged. And I sit down and I say, can I see the rubric? Can I see the assignment? And sometimes I don't understand what the professor wants. Um, or sometimes feedback is given. Um, <laughs> the biggest thing, it's, it's kind of funny, but not um, when professors give feedback on papers in cursive because the students can't read it. 
Uh, I had a professor in grad school who used to, his handwriting wasn't great anyway, but he was actually totally fine with writing long comments that were completely indecipherable because he wanted people to come in and talk to him. That's actually really smart. And so, of that. yeah, you know, tell them, you Maybe need you to should. go talk <laughs> right, to your professor right. and get them to explain this. You know, tell them you're right. not sure what they're saying here. Because I don't know how much of his comment was tongue-in-cheek. He might have been just, like, pulling my leg a little bit. But, I mean, it's kind of, it's right. legit, right? Because, I don't know, I've kind of quit writing comments on people's papers because uh, I would frequently, you know, like, I there was some awareness that I would be spending more time writing this, you know, carefully crafted, helpful comment, then they would spend reading or in, ingesting it. Because right. most of the students just look at their grade and toss it aside. Right, and like, if I want people to come in, I have to really go to great lengths to get them to come in. Correct. I mean, I know as a student, the first thing I did was flip to the back page and look at the grade. And if it was an A or a high B, I wouldn't even care. If it was lower than a B plus, I would then read the comments. Right. And, you know, the, what that means is that any comments that that teacher wrote that were, you know, if it's an good, A paper and you're right. like, you're interested in being a better writer. Well, they might have written comments that could have helped you be a better right. writer, even though it's an A paper, but you're never going to see those. So, right. you know, I don't, I don't feel like I should be putting in more work on a student's paper than right. they did. <laughs> it's, it's like, well, it's, it's like being a therapist. Never work harder than your client. Like, yeah, that's definitely true. And I wish I didn't have so much of my job that was about taking care of their feelings, but there's actually a lot of it. Right. So, excuse me. So yeah, I, um, I just, I think that, that a lot of times going back to this whole systems thinking, um, you know, it's it's a thing for me lately that I tend to, you know, if it's not a, a like system level type one thing like walking, um, or if it presents any difficulty any difficulty for me, um, more than a minute of thought, I tend to just not want to do it. Um, like for example, now that I have free time coming up. I want to go through my office. I have so many pencils. I have so much stationery. So, so much. It's just sitting there. I can either send it to people who want it, sell it, and it's just like, it's not a level one task, obviously. Um, and so I try to understand, is it a motivation thing or is it an overwhelming thing? Because I think there's kind of a little bit of a difference. Like, or is it the same? Is being overwhelmed what leads to lack of motivation? I mean, I would say that they're definitely tied up. And this is something I know that when Les hears this, she's going to be just like, Ooh, Ooh, <laughs> but, um, you know, okay. So decision fatigue is a real thing. Yeah. Making a lot of decisions is cognitively tiring. And I, when I first read an article about decision fatigue, I was really like, it, it really changed how I, was able to let myself off the hook for things sometimes because when I've had one of those days at work where I've just been really having to do a lot of sort of decision-making tasks and I get home and the spouse wants to know what we're having for dinner and I'm like, I 
so much do not care. I will cook. I'm happy to cook, but just tell me what you want. Cause I don't, I can't even cope with thinking about what would be a good thing to cook for dinner. So tell me something and I'll make it happen. And you know, like I'm, I'm just in that space where if I can get other people to just make decisions, I don't have to worry about. I can let myself off the hook for that. But otherwise you feel like, why can I not make a decision about what to have for dinner? <laughs> you know? <laughs> and it's just because it's not important and there's no right and wrong answers. And I just don't want to do it. You know, like it's another task to do. And if I have to do it, we're going to end up with takeout because I can't even. Um, so that, that's been one for me. But yeah, so the motivation and the, the, um, being overwhelmed, I think, yeah, if, okay, so if looking, if going through those things was going to be something that was going to actually be pleasurable for you, then you wouldn't feel as overwhelmed by it. Right, I'd, I'd want to do it. But that. on the other hand, if it were a smaller task, maybe you would find more pleasure in it. And how I finally got over that was that over time, I was thinking about, like, some categories that I would have and some, um, you know, some people that I would send some things to and stuff like that. And so when I was able to line up a bunch of boxes with sticky notes with people's names on them and line up a large box that said, you know, sort and put away later and a box that said, you know, get rid of these, you know, whatever, right? Just right. a box to throw a bunch of stuff into that I, I know that I'm not interested in having, but, you know, I could I could toss them in with stuff to go to other people and they might find good homes, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, or it's a box to donate. And then I didn't feel like I had to go through everything. If I had a space where I could have those boxes, and they're not huge boxes, you know, they're little boxes. They're smaller than shoe boxes. And some of them are just um, empty pencil boxes that are, you know, they hold a dozen, give or take. But having that stuff lined up over time and not feeling like, oh, I have nine packages I have to get together and I've got to do it all at once, right? And so I could just pull something out and like throw some things into the box and, you know, throw some of them into the can to photograph and, you know, the one cigar box that says sort and put away. And it made it so much more manageable of a task, but it also made it so much more pleasurable of a task because yeah. I could pull out an envelope of eBay vintage pencils that I had not had a chance to look at and just, you know, just pull them out and look at them and enjoy them. And because I'm only going to be dealing with 15 or 20 pencils, I don't have to budget a day for it, right? I can do it over a few minutes. And because the boxes are already sitting out and they're open and they're labeled, I don't have to put any thought into that. Right? right. So that kind of breaking it into a smaller task, having a plan, finding the pleasure in it, and maybe even putting in your calendar, like I have a half hour here, let's, you know, or 10 minutes, let's pull out a box of pencils and just look at them and enjoy them and find something in there that's, that's beautiful and take a picture of it and stick it on the group and whatever. Right. Right. And I think also what's what's interesting is I find – so take the task that I want to do, organizing my office and kind of purging some stuff. Um, and I'm sure this happens to you. I think it happens to every human. Um, if I'm engaged in something else while doing that, it is not a problem. So, like, do you ever talk on the phone 
And you find yourself walking around the house, like, doing things? Yes, definitely. Mindlessly, like... Yes. And so, you know, it's like, I almost have to, like, when I have, like, cleaning to do, I'll make those phone calls that I haven't made. Right. You know, calling my parents or... Absolutely. You know. Weeding, folding laundry, yeah. Right. And so it kind of becomes this, like, you want to kind of dissociate from the gross task by distracting yourself, um, which I find really interesting. It's not something I ever thought about or read into. It's not even, you know, I don't know what that means. But I think, I think there's a lot of little hacks into how to, how to get things you don't want to do done. But I don't. Well, want you know, I think about. Go ahead. No, I was gonna say I don't want to have to do that. I want to be able to put it in my calendar that hey, you know, I have both of my jobs today, but I have a two-hour gap in between. You know, let me eat some lunch, and then I have a half hour to, like, go in my office and, like, look at stuff. Yeah, and put on a podcast or something like that. But, right. you know, like, you think back to our, you, you think back to, like, human society before what we have now, right? Almost everybody in the history of humankind has been a farmer, a subsistence farmer, basically, right? We are a species of subsistence farmers until the last couple hundred years with a few specialists that leave a, an outsized record of themselves, but almost everybody grows enough food to feed their family in exchange with their neighbors and then dies leaving no written record. Right. So, you know, so like I think about Thanksgiving growing up and going to the kitchen and like all the women are working together, washing the dishes and just chatting and the men are sitting around or going for a walk and watching the football game and chatting and, you know, that people would go in the workshop and work on building something together and just chatting while they do it and sitting on the porch shelling peas a la Anne of Green Gables, right? And right. chatting. And we're mostly just, you know, we had a lot of tasks, again, that were not cognitively demanding tasks. <laughs> There's nothing demanding about shelling peas, right? No. Uh, or washing dishes. But that if you're doing it with other people and you're kind of sharing in the task together and one of you is washing and one of you is drying, it's this very companionable kind of time. So I think that that's just an outgrowth of that. If I'm, if I can talk on the phone with a friend or my sister or somebody while I'm folding laundry, like I would totally go over to my friend's house and just fold laundry together and chat, but it's hard to schedule those things. Right. Right. So for me to be folding laundry or making beds while I'm talking on the phone is actually kind of perfect. It's yeah. it's very much in our roots as humans, I think, to be doing that. Yeah, no, definitely. I never thought of it that way. Well, you know, I'm a nerd. <laughs> we were no also uh, talking about um, defaults. Uh, so um, another book that I really recommend, uh, even... Uh, I, I'll put up a, a link in the show notes for the Kindle version. I don't know what people read these days, but uh, it was Nudge. And this is, I, I think I've brought this one up on the podcast before, actually, because it was pretty influential for me uh, in a lot of ways, but in one very specific way that there are no, uh, there are sort of no neutral defaults in design. So when we set things up, we set them up a certain way for a certain reason. and Thinking about it's sort of getting out of the mindset that putting the 
defaults together in a certain way is manipulative because it's always it's if you do it consciously it's going to be manipulative right so it's kind of like what do you want what kind of behavior do you want to manipulate and so if you're in marketing you want to manipulate people to buy more stuff without realizing they're doing it right because if they think too hard about it they'll buy less stuff <laughs> Or they might buy different stuff, right? You want to just, you want to get them to make those snap judgments and not think too hard about it. uh, Unless you're the kind of thing that they would have to think hard and make a decision to, you know, like if you're, if you have something that's better, but more expensive, um, you want to find a way to get people to, to make that decision, right? So it could go either way, but just about when I'm, when I'm designing policies for my course, sort of realizing that the way that I set up the defaults, like what's going to happen if you do nothing, right, can be really powerful. Because I think, you know, if I start from the point of view that most of my students want to be successful in the class, and if you ask them, they would say they want to learn enough chemistry to be successful in the class, right? Most of them wouldn't say, I just want an A without doing any work, right? Um, so if I can set things up in a way that makes it easier for them to do, you know, to keep up with stuff, it's not about how carefully can you read a convoluted kind of policy and see the hidden meaning in it, but how clearly can I write something so that the extraneous stuff sort of happens automatically, right? So not having deadlines that move around is one. If we have an online homework course, uh, an online homework system for my course, the deadlines are always on the same days at the same times. And if something happens and I have to move one of them, I don't move it 24 hours. I don't open it up for another 12 hours. I move it to whatever the next deadline for that course would be. Right. And if that's Monday, Wednesday, Friday at midnight, then if I move one from Wednesday, I move it to Friday. I don't move it to Thursday. I don't give a one-day extension. Because that creates something that's not normal, right? And whether they can remember to do homework on one Thursday night when everything else is Monday, Wednesday, Friday is not chemistry, <laughs> you know, like, right, right. that's not, you know, that's not telling me anything about whether they can learn chemistry. And so trying to set up the defaults in a way that things are very automatic and they don't have to put a lot of their cognitive effort into just figuring out what needs to be done is is part of it and this is um uh do you ever listen to hidden brain um a few times not recently oh, but God, a few i times. love the hidden brain podcast but um one of the things i was just re-listening to yesterday actually is about scarcity okay and this idea that when things are scarce it literally changes the way your brain approaches things and you get this tunnel vision so if money is scarce it becomes much more difficult to, you know, you're, because we, you know, we, we evolved as these, you need to eat, you need to, you know, <laughs> you need to reproduce, you need to whatever, right? So right. if you're in the middle of those scarcity traps, you're not making the best decisions about how to use the limited amount of the resource you have, right? You're, you're in starvation mode kind of thing. And I don't, I don't want to create a situation in which my students are having a hard time thinking about 
learning chemistry because they're putting so much effort into just figuring out when the deadlines are or figuring out what the parameters of a task are or whatever. Yeah. Um, and that uh, I'll, I'll put a link to that episode too, because it's, it's pretty fascinating because, you know, we blame people. One of the things in that one was about uh, trying to set up job training and, and things like that for people to access, like for, for people in hopefully temporary poverty situations to access programs and to, you know, uh, job training or, um, uh, assistance programs or whatever, you know, and we, we make the requirements for these things very difficult to meet, you know, like you have to be on time. You cannot miss a meeting. You cannot miss a payment. You cannot miss, um, you know, you can't be late. You can't, forget to turn in a certain piece of paperwork, right? Or you're just out. Well, right. you know what? Those things actually need to be really fault tolerant because if you exactly. start from the assumption that, oh, these people are irresponsible and we need to make them learn responsibility right now, <laughs> you know, right, and you go right. instead with, it's very difficult to be 100% responsible about every single thing if you are on the edge of disaster if any one thing goes wrong, you know. So we should be making those kinds of things fault tolerant. And so I try to walk the line between making yeah. things fault tolerant and making and really holding students accountable because if students know they're not going to be held accountable, then they let things slide and then they can't catch up before the end of the semester. Right. So it's ultimately harmful to have too much slack in the system and it impacts the most vulnerable students the most strongly. So right. it's always this balancing act that I'm walking all the time of what's going to serve my students, what's going to save the most vulnerable students, which is not flexibility, by the way. <laughs> if they know they have flexibility, it's a disaster. Um, right. It makes me think of, um, so I took this class my last year, um, at Mount Holyoke and one of the psych professors in the department was, um, on a sabbatical. She was doing a study and doing research. And one of her, um, things she was studying was classroom autonomy and how a class would run if students were given the power to decide how they were graded. So, my class that I was in was actually part of the study. So we got our syllabus on the first day and it was the super long syllabus. It was like 15 pages. And I was like, what on earth? So it basically gave you an entire layout. If you want to get an A, this is what you have to do. If you want a B, this is what you have to do. Um, and then there were also, it was built in a little thing that was built in was like a token economy. So if you did this, then you got a a free pass to skip a reading response, you know? And so initially I was like, this is so great. Like I have no question in my mind what it is I have to do to get an A. But then I really kind of looked at it and like even the A, you know, the, the criteria for getting an A was like, you have to do like nine out of 10 responses and you have to, you know, write all four papers. Um, and, and so it was like, you know, okay, like this is doable. But then I got to the attendance part. You were allowed to miss 
eight classes in a semester. Now, and do you think that's high or low? It's high because this class only met twice a week. So you're essentially allowed to miss a month worth of classes, if I'm doing my math correctly. Yes. Yeah. So I got an A in the class because I knew how to get an A in the class. But I feel like my motivation and my desire to be inquisitive and to learn and to be that student that I normally am was totally gone. And I felt like I was just kind of like, okay, well, let me check in with the syllabus and see where I'm at on this A scale, you know? And I walked oh, away yeah. from this class not learning. I didn't, I, and I gave the, at the end of the class, we had to do a questionnaire for the researcher, you know, what did you think? And I said all of what I just said. Like, I, in theory, it might be a good idea to give students the the power um, to to make, you know, certain decisions in the classroom. But I think that it was just way too loose. Like, to miss eight classes just blows my mind. Like, most professors are like, you can miss two in the semester. All right. I'm going to play the flip side of that, though. Because okay. that's, for one thing, that's very, very heavily dependent on the discipline and on the kind of class it is. Yes. Because if you're running a seminar class where part of the purpose of the class is to have discussions in class in which students are expected to contribute their yeah. own thoughts and feedback and also to get, you know, to to absorb the thoughts and feedback and be exposed to the thoughts and feedback of others, then I think it it is absolutely appropriate to say, you know, you basically need to target never missing. <laughs> you know, right. and if you have an emergency, you can miss this much and, you know, but don't waste it. And well, it's going to start. Was. Yeah, it was. But OK, see, so that mind. that's really appropriate to say you have to be there. Um, but I don't track attendance in my classes. And I it's on purpose that I don't. It's partly just because they're so large that yeah. any way of tracking attendance that take didn't take forever would be almost meaningless anyway because it would be really easy for people to fudge right, right like most professors um, do that sign your name on a paper pass it around but you right can just write your friend's so name. exactly people could write their friend's name or people have clickers and you know I, you know you of course you say you're not allowed to have more than one clicker but people do you know whatever right right and but i kind of don't care because here's the thing if you're teaching a content course and you say you have to be in class to be successful, therefore, I'm going to track attendance and I'm going to fail you if you're not in class. You have just shown that your first statement was a lie. Because if they have to be in class to be successful, you don't have to track it because it's going to take care of itself, right? So, you know, for my part, like I kind of in principle in college, I just don't uh, believe in uh, in giving people points for showing up. Right. I, because so, I don't think, I think, you know, showing up is sort of the floor on which you put everything else, right? But if people don't show up, they also typically end up failing. And if somebody doesn't have to come to my class and they can still learn the material and get an A or a B or a C, more power to them, right? Fine. Right. Because I kind of don't, like, it, it's not that important to me that somebody just have their butt in class for that two-hour period. It's important to me that they learn the material. 
And that's an economic decision that they can make, and it's fine with me. Right. I think think you're totally, like, spot on with that, because I think my experiences are so different than yours, because I went to a small liberal arts college where... Yeah. Biggest class size was 20. Right. And it's very, very easy with 20 people to glance around the room and know who's not there. And it takes 15 seconds and you don't even have to call names. But in my class, you know, just calling through the roster is going to be like a five minute task. And it's, you know, that's 10% of a 50 minute class. Right. So it's a stupid use of time. And also, you know what? If people don't want, if freshmen don't want to be in class, I kind of would just assume they're not there because it just drags everything down. You know, people who are just pissed about having to show up are just showing up because they have to or they lose points. That is not a way to create a uh, useful atmosphere for discussing ideas and and helping each other learn concepts. So, yeah, yeah. I I mean, there's a lot to this. And uh, it's definitely true that if students are academically immature, that setting those kinds of expectations up front can um, can be really helpful. And I do, you know, I say your target needs to be missing zero class this semester. And every time you walk in, you know, if you walk into class five minutes late every time, this is how much that comes up to over the course of the semester. And this is how much money that is in terms of the percent of the tuition that you've paid for this class. And every time right. you blow off class, it's this much money. Plus, you're going to have a hard time catching up and you're not going to be ready in the next class. So, you know, I've been teaching for 20 years. I know where the poop is on the sidewalk and I will point it out to you. But if you still want to walk through it, that's on you, not me. Right. <laughs> no, I I agree. I think young people are just going to be totally different. For me, if you told me, if you miss this many classes, this is how much money you're missing as an older oh, adult. Oh, right. Yes. I'd no, like, give Whoa. me a classroom full of returning students anytime. I love the grown-ups in my classes. It's always ever, awesome. We'll wrap this up soon, but do you ever have non-traditional students like people? Oh, sure, lots. Yeah. Every semester. And, I usually have one or two that are older than me, although that's becoming less common as I get older, but yeah. <laughs> you know. Well, yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, I always have a few grown-ups in the class, and it's it's yes. always really fun. I cool. say grown-ups like, I mean, you know, the, I know I'm what you mean. gonna say in my own defense that the brain research shows that our brains are really not finished until we're at least about twenty-five. So, you know, it's right. not. I'm not being completely unreasonable there, but yeah. Correct. So, so anyway, think- yeah, I definitely think we need to come back around to this with less because this is gonna. This is a fun topic. And it's making me want to go back and read some of the things that I've enjoyed reading before. Right, because we totally didn't even get into the whole other half of, of this. So I think with less here, and I do want to do some reading too, I'm looking at this book list that we have posted. <laughs> yeah, right? Excited. So, um, <laughs> so all right. So um, you can find us online at rsvpstationarypodcast.com, as always. And before I tell all of you where you can find the three of us, as always, I just want to thank all of our listeners for joining us every other week um, and talking about whatever we decide to talk about. I really like the participation and I've been kind of quiet on the Facebook page, but uh, that's going to change soon because I'll have no work. So I will be posting a lot more and engaging a lot more. Um, but if you want, um, 
you know, feel free to share a link to our podcast to anyone you feel might be interested. Um, that could be on your own personal Facebook page. That could be in another stationary related group. Um, you know, but you don't have to, um, big or small, we're still going to do this because we like doing it. I think we'd do this if we had no listeners, really. Um, so true, but we'd be spending less time testing our mics. Correct. Um, so less can be found at comfortableshoesstudio.com on Facebook under comfortable shoes studio and on Instagram and Twitter at original LC Harbor. Um, me, Dade, you can find me at weeklypencil.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at the weekly pencil. Lenore, what about you? You can find me on Twitter at Lenore underscore Hoyt and in the, in Facebook through the RSVP stationary podcast group or the erasable podcast group. I'm the only, I, I shouldn't be using my, you know, what was I thinking? Setting up everything with my real name 10 years ago. I, I didn't know it was hip and trendy to, you know, <laughs> have some anonymity online. And now here I am with people actually being able to find the real me. It makes it much harder to hide. Well, right. Especially being a um, professor, I feel like yeah. you probably Googled um, a fair amount. Yeah. <laughs> well, when I yeah, Google you... can't hide. <laughs> A bunch of pictures come up with your face, um, and the first one is the College Department of Chemistry, and oh, yeah. you're an associate professor of inorganic organometallic synthesis. Yep. So yeah, no, no bad stuff. Oh, actually, that needs to be updated, because I'm a professor now. I'm not associate anymore. Oh, well, Ha-ha. Nice. <laughs> so, I think you're safe. But anyhow... Okay. Um, thanks for joining us and we will see, actually hear you guys, or wait, I'm just going to delete that because that was awkward and weird. So, um, all right, Lenore, it's been fun. Thank you so much. No problem. Bye-bye. Bye.